0: From baseball's top personalities... The great Chris Russo joins us once again. ...to the game's top players. Joining us is the All-Star, Matt Chapman. with us. You never know what
2: stories you're going to hear.
0: If you make your way down here, I I might be able to make some time and go out there and see
2: the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris
0: Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Today, we are going to take a look at the American League East with voices from all of these different franchises. You're going to hear from Ken Singleton of the New York Yankees, Dwayne stats from the Tampa Bay Rays, Dave O'Brien from the Boston Red Sox. Uh, what a great catcher, uh, but also a terrific broadcaster. Rick Dempsey with the Baltimore Orioles. And then another guy that was a pretty good player in his time. He's managed. He's done everything you can do in baseball buck martinez but we're going to start out with ken singleton one of the great orioles of all time but he's from new york and he's broadcasting for his hometown new york yankees here is ken singleton well as everybody knows here on a's cast live we've been going over every single division and every single team as we continue in the american league east now we're talking about the new york yankees who were 103 and 59 an unbelievable year and joining us now he's a world series champion a three-time all-star he's in the Baltimore Orioles Hall of Fame he's a Roberto Clemente Award winner the great Ken Singleton joins us here on A's Cast Live longtime Yankee broadcaster Ken thank you so much for the time
3: it is my pleasure it's good to talk some baseball in this uh, at this time
0: Yeah, no doubt. And hopefully what we're going to see in South Korea and Japan and then hopefully NASCAR and the PGA Tour as these leagues uh, start to get going. Hopefully that'll help us in Major League Baseball get going.
3: Yeah, um, you know, it's been a while. I'm sure people are getting a little impatient, but uh, I I think before we. We do get started in Major League Baseball again. we to have to make sure that uh, everything is on the up and up. Everybody will be safe. Eventually, maybe the fans will be able to come back. Uh, there's just a lot of things that have to be taken care of before we're able to, to get going here. And I, I'd like to see them do it correctly rather than start and then have to stop and uh, shut everything down again.
0: You know, we were down in San Diego for the winter meetings, and when we were doing our show, we were like, literally right next to the Yes Network and their stage. Uh-huh. And when Garrett Cole signed with the Yankees, there was like an explosion. <laughs> it, was, it was unbelievable. <laughs> what was it like in the Yankees' world when they landed Garrett Cole?
3: Yeah, well, the fans, you can expect, were excited uh, you know, after the Yankees signed, the uh, arguably the best pitcher in the game. Uh, certainly had the great stats last year. Uh, finished second in the uh, Cy Young to his own teammate, uh, Justin Verlander, And uh, to add him to the top of the Yankee rotation, which was uh, uh, pretty good to begin with, uh, now you give him that uh, ace starter. Uh, it kind of reminded me of back in the day when the Yankees uh, uh, signed Catfish Hunter. Uh, <laughs> when he uh, left the A's with the dispute with Charlie Finley, the owner of the A's, and the Yankees were able to sign him as a free agent. It kind of reminded me of that. And sort of the uh, hubbub that was in New York when Catfish signed back in the 70s. And now uh, with Garrett Cole to go along with Tanaka, half Paxton, and Montgomery. That's a pretty good – that's a formidable rotation that the Yankees have there.
0: Yeah, You know, it's it's so interesting watching MLB Network, and they're doing all these classic games. And obviously, you know, I saw a game from – a World Series game one – 1998 Yankees against the Padres they just showed the the classic game 7 of 2001 Yankees against the D-backs and then I saw this mm-hmm. stat and it's it just it, it really is crazy cuz a lot of the years you played the Yankees they weren't great. I mean Don Mattingly only went to the playoffs one time in his career, but since 1993 the Yankees have had 27 consecutive winning seasons. This is a run yeah. that's unprecedented.
3: Well, uh, there's only been one longer, and that was with the Yankees. I think it was back in the 30s, but uh, I've been with the, the Yes Network and the Yankees now for 24 years. It's <laughs> been a winning season every single year. Uh, so I've got no complaints as far as bringing good news to the fans in the New York area and around the country who are Yankee fans. Uh, it just seems that uh, they're a strong organization. Certainly they have the wherewithal to get things done. They They do have the money. And uh, they they seem to make good decisions. Uh, Brian Cashman's been their longtime general manager, and he certainly has been one of the best in the game. And uh, the organization itself, uh, uh, they are strong into sabermetrics and all that sort of thing. So they, they know what they're doing uh, analytically and uh, with the scouting department as well. They seem to know which players uh, can do what and uh, who can help them at, at certain times. Now, of course, when you have a chance to sign somebody like, garrett cole uh, that was just the money having the word with all uh, the matter of having the word with all to do it and yankees made him uh, the strongest offer
0: can you've never had to suffer like some of us have had to suffer when the ball club's like 20 <laughs> games out and that's no no chance <laughs> and you're just making stuff up to try and be entertaining you have no idea what that's like
3: well uh, not with the yankees but uh, you have to remember, before I came to the Yankees, I, I did Montreal games for 12 years, and there, there were some very lean times with the Expos uh, before I got to the Yankees. And uh, of course, they had some they had some pretty good years, but uh, mostly they were, uh, you know, a 500 or sub 500 team. So I did pay my dues as far as uh, broadcasting is concerned. Now I, I grew up in the New York area, so getting back to the Yankees, I, I've seen the Yankees for. Uh, a long, long time. I grew up on Yankee baseball, so to get a chance to go back to my, my hometown, although I don't live in New York, uh, it was when I go there, I don't get lost. So I, I, I was. it's been really enjoyable, to say the least. I've enjoyed every single minute of uh, broadcasting Yankee baseball.
0: You know, the one thing of, about not playing and not starting the season on time, the Yankees were pretty banged up in spring training, which, yeah. you know, Surprising, you know, Judge, now we're hearing about a collapsed lung, uh, Stanton, uh, you know, quite a few guys. So uh, I got to think once we get this thing started again, the Yankees should be close to healthy, right?
3: Yeah, that's true. Um, You know, it's kind of amazing. They were able to win 103 games last year when I think they had about 34 players uh, go on the injured list from one time or another, including Judge including Stanton, who only hit three home runs all last year, played 18 games. Uh, these are some of the power hitters, that, uh, the best power hitters in the game, and the Yankees still hit 306 home runs last year. Uh, I think that um, Judge, he's on his way. I, I heard a, um, uh, an interview with Aaron Boone, the Yankee manager, just uh, the other day. and He mentioned that Stanton's about ready to go. He's ready to play when they come back now. This in, in a way, this shutdown has kind of helped the Yankees. Uh, James Paxson, the starting pitcher, had back surgery. He should be ready pretty soon too if they get started in June or, or, or early July. Uh, Judge, he's still not quite healed. He, he has to go and under, undergo another cat scan on his rib and uh, but he's getting closer. And Aaron Hicks, who had uh, Tommy John surgery, the outfielder had Tommy John surgery last October, Uh, He's starting to hit from both sides of the plate and starting to throw. So he should be ready sometime in July as well. So this shutdown for the Yankees, in a way, may have helped him uh, get healthier as a team and get some of their star players back. Of course, they they lost Luis Severino for the year with Tommy John surgery, uh, and he will be missed. Uh, He's one of the best pitchers in the league. But uh, the Yankees should be able to fill his spot with Jordan Montgomery, who's back from uh, Tommy John surgery.
0: You know, you mentioned Aaron Boone. The last time I talked to Aaron Boone, he was a broadcaster on ESPN Mm -hmm. and and (laughs) knew he was a cool cat then. Uh, You've watched him grow as a manager, and the job he did last year, winning 103 games, as you said, all the different guys that were hurt, what have you seen in Aaron Aaron Boone and how he's grown as a manager?
3: He doesn't panic. Uh, Despite all the injuries last year, his mantra was, uh, the next man up, we've, we have people who can do the job. And he never let the team uh, get down on themselves, despite the fact that uh, Judge missed the third of the season, and Stanton missed most of it. And uh, there were other people that were out as well. Uh, Hicks were extended period of time. Degorius didn't join the team until June or July. And it, was, it was one player after another, but they seemed to keep their nose to the grindstone. And it was just because of the fact that he never – Used the, uh, the terminology of woe is us or uh, war we. Uh, the, the, the fact is that uh, he just said, Nobody's going to feel sorry for us because we have all these people hurt. We'll just get the job done. And he's been a manager for two years now. And the first year, the Yankees won 100 games. And last year, they won 103. And, and to me, uh, they were on that pace again this year. And, uh, you know, certainly one of the favorites to win the World Series, along with the Oakland A's, who. Uh, before the season even started, uh, going back to spring training. I picked the A's to win the Western Division. I just thought they uh, it was their time to put it over the top in the West. They've got a very strong team.
0: Yeah, we're very excited. And, and I think the thing about winning 97 games, two straight years, being in the wild mm-hmm. card game, two straight years, that this team is really ready to compete. And I think there's only a handful of teams. If we played 162 games, there was only a handful yeah. of teams that could actually win the World Series, but now in a shortened season, it's kind of anybody's game. So we'll see. And one guy I wanted to talk to you about that had just an unbelievable year last year is D.J. LeMahieu. I mean, he hit 392 yeah. with in scoring position. He had an unbelievable season. And, you know, you never know what you're going to get from a guy that played all of his home games at Coors Field because obviously up there a mile high up, uh, it's an advantage hitting in that big ballpark in the in the in the air. But what he did last year for the Yankees, tell us about his season. It was truly incredible.
3: Yeah, when he came to spring training, he didn't really have a position. In fact, I don't think he started on opening day. Um, but he ended up playing third base, second base, which is his natural position, and also first base. So he was very versatile. He was the Yankee team MVP for sure. And as you said, his statistics were off the charts. I mean, he was up there in the batting race. Uh, you mentioned how well he hit with runners in scoring position. He hit for power like he had never done before. He drove in 100 runs, which he had never done before. And this is primarily out of the leadoff spot. So I, I just think that uh, – and after this year, he can be a free agent. So the Yankees are going to have to make a decision, which I don't think will be too hard. You, you, you want guys like that to stick around. And uh, the fact that he's versatile, but this year – It seems like he's going to be locked in at uh, second base, which is his former gold glove position. Uh, Now that the Yankees have moved Glaber Torres over to shortstop, with Gregorius moving on to the Phillies as a free agent. So I I just think that uh, uh, maybe he can be even better, hopefully. You know, if he can uh, uh, stay away from the injury bug, which has plagued many of his teammates. Uh, This guy is a solid baseball player. I really enjoyed watching him play. Doesn't make many mistakes in the field. Uh, and uh, for a big man, he really turns the double plays as, as well as any second baseman in the game.
0: And you mentioned Torres. I mean, this mm-hmm. kid, this kid's talent is off the charts.
3: Yeah, he well, I, he's only 23 years old, so he's got a long way to go. He hit 38 home runs last year, um, he hit 13 of them against the Baltimore Orioles, which uh, <laughs> uh, drove their broadcaster Gary Thorne absolutely nuts. I think he had five multi-home run games, and three of them were against the Orioles. Uh, just, uh, he's he's a tremendous young player, a great young man, and it looks like now he's going to be the Yankees shortstop moving over from second base, uh, and hopefully uh, from the Yankees' standpoint for years to come, and certainly one of the best trades that uh, Brian Cashman uh, made with the Yankees. Of course, they, they traded Chapman to the Cubs, the trade wouldn't have been made unless Torres was involved, and then they got Chapman back as a free agent. So I, I just uh, 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 the fans love him in New York. He's a very personable young man, and uh, hopefully, uh, like I said, he'll be around for a long, long time.
0: Let's end on this. As you mentioned, uh, Torres beating up on on the Orioles, and that's what the Yankees did. The Yankees were fifty four and twenty two in the AL East last year, the best ever by any team in a division. Just how important is it now in baseball to mop up on the bottom feeders in the game?
3: Well, not only that, your own division in particular, uh, depending on who you're playing in the division, uh, the Yankees had a winning record against every team in the division last year. Uh, The team that played the best against them was Toronto. Uh, They beat the Red Sox quite handily. They hammered the Orioles went seventeen and two against Baltimore and didn't lose a game in Baltimore all year. They won all ten games in Baltimore and while they were in Baltimore, they hit sixty two home runs at Canton Yards in those ten games. So they just wore out uh, they 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 wore out Baltimore pitching. They hit sixty two home runs overall against the Orioles, I should say. They just wore them out.
0: You know, we love popping on MLB.com and watching your guys broadcast. You guys do a tremendous job. And, of course, the Yankees are uh, a fantastic bra- uh, ball club. But I've been watching you for so many years, and, and you're outstanding. And thank you so much for the time. I know you've talked about retirement, but I hope uh, you're going to stick around because you're, you're one of the best ones we got in the game.
3: Well, I, I appreciate the sentiments. Uh, I, I do love baseball. I've loved it ever since my dad introduced me to the game when I was four years old. But eventually this is going to have to stop. Um, I, I thought that this year might be my last year, but the way things have gone, I, I can't go out like this. So I, I definitely, if they'll have me back next year, I, I'll, I would come back. So, um, uh, But if they don't, it's, it's, it's been a nice ride. I, I've, I've really enjoyed this game. Yes Network, as you said, uh, probably the best of the regional sports networks to work with. Uh, great people. Although when they come out to Oakland, we work with local people there and they have a great crews in Oakland and uh, they help us put on a good show when we're on the West Coast.
0: Can be safe. We appreciate the time and hopefully we'll see you in Oakland soon.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Missed it this year, but hopefully next year.
0: From the Yankees to the Rays. You know, we've talked a lot about this on A's Cast Live about how the A's and the Rays really are mere images of each other with the issues that they have on and off the field, getting the most out of your players without spending a ton of money, trying to get a new ballpark. And Dwayne Stats is the voice of, of the Tampa Bay Rays, and he was on the call when he was working for the Yankees when Ricky Henderson broke the all-time stolen base record. We'll talk about that also. Here's the voice of the Rays, Dwayne Stats. We thank you so much for coming on the program once again as we're going to talk a little bit about the Tampa Bay Rays and what it's going to look like for the Rays when we get going again in 2020, plus some historical moments that you've been a part of, including – Ricky Henderson stealing the base, and he's the all-time stolen base leader. You were doing, I believe, television that day. Is that correct?
4: Yes. Tony Kubek and I were doing uh, television on the Madison Square Garden Network, and um, we we were all part of the fun. You know, I think uh, everybody remembers Ricky stealing third, and then everything stopped, and, he was honored, and he had the bag and picked it up above his head and said, I'm the greatest. And I always thought, hey, you can't argue with him. He's the greatest base stealer of all time. Um, it, was, um, it was pretty fun. Uh, I, I had recalled, and we were chatting just for a second before we went on the uh, air, uh, he actually had, had tried to steal a base. He walked to begin the bottom of the first inning and then was caught stealing in second and then stole third to set the record in the fourth inning. And he was caught stealing again later in the game, trying to steal third again. So he was only one for three in the stolen base department. But, you know, what the heck? He was the greatest of all time. So he got the one that counted.
0: You know, when you look back at Ricky Henderson, and we had his former teammate and childhood friend on, Dave Stewart, talking about it. What was it like as a broadcaster? Because you knew when he came up, something really special could happen. Whether it's going to be a leadoff home run or he's going to get on, steal a couple bases and scored. What was that like for you when you're broadcasting Ricky Henderson came to the plate?
4: Well, if you weren't paying attention going in, you did what he stepped in or when he reached base and, uh, and you're right about the home run. I mean, here's a guy, not only going to steal all those bases, but. You know, he had great power, so he was a threat from the moment he stepped in the batter's box, and and regardless of uh, whether he was in the batter's box or on the bases, he was an offensive threat without question, and it was, you know, the excitement that he brought, and and that's the great thing about the game. I I think there are the ebbs and flows of the game, the approach that different people have, the talents that people have, and... And so I, I, he was one of those guys who just injected excitement into the game and just demanded that you pay attention.
0: You know, also on this day in baseball history was the last of Nolan Ryan's no hitters. You called a Nolan Ryan, no hitter. I think as a broadcaster going in, whenever he was on the mound, you had to be prepared that something like that could happen.
4: Yeah. Same thing with Nolan when he pitched, you know, um, I was in Houston when he, at the time, uh, broke the uh, uh, the no-hit record. You know, Sandy Koufax had four, and Nolan threw his fifth against the Dodgers uh, in the Astrodome, and got Dusty Baker on a ground ball to uh, Art Howe at third base to end that one. So there's no question. Anytime Nolan pitched, you know, uh, here, here are two great guys, great pitchers and hitters and base runners. You know, we talked about the impact that Henderson had, and Nolan was the same way. I I always loved when he started a game, he'd finish those warm-up tosses in the first inning, and then he'd walk down off the mound, and he'd go to one side of the field toward the plate and kind of smooth the infield grass. and he'd walk into the other side and smooth that part which was just a great message of telling all the hitters, there will be no bunting. This part of the infield belongs to me. And if you try to put a ball down there, then you're going to feel a baseball a little later. So no bunting, fellas. And I thought that was just one of of the great little things that he brought to a game.
0: I've only interviewed him one time, and he was the nicest guy. Uh, But my whole life, watching him pitch, And I always remember they were always, you know, I grew up in Southern California, so it was always, oh, he's going to retire, so you got to come see him at Angel at the Big A. because, And, of course, he never retired. He just kept on pitching. But what was it like being around him? Because what I know of him, the great competitor, he was fierce, he was mean, but off the field, supposedly he's the nicest guy in the world.
4: Absolutely, the greatest guy in the world. His his whole family is like that. Uh, His sons, his daughter. He's, he's one of my favorite people. And if you meet him, I, I think regardless if he if he had never picked up a baseball in his life and you ran across the Nolan Ryan family, Nolan and Ruth, you would, you would say, these are the greatest people. I, I, I want to just hang with these people. And, and he's been like that so long as I knew him. And, you know, you really get to know them if you're with a club and they're on that team and it's a day in and day out situation, you know, it's, it, you see stars, and you have a few minutes with them here and there. As you said, you know, you, you interview them once, you get a feel for what they are. But when you're when you're with them on a day in and day out basis, uh, it's it's a great experience. And Nolan was just uh, just a pleasure to be around. And I and Reed, you know, his son, uh, same thing. Uh, got into baseball, you know. He Reed tried to play baseball, and as he'll tell you, it didn't work out all that well. But he's been successful in management and, uh, you know, running minor league clubs and over in Houston with the Astros and doing all the great things uh, there. He got, I guess, he kind of diminished his role just in time with the Astros. But uh, great family, great family, no question.
0: You know, we 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 got a chance to talk to Kevin Cash down at the winter meetings in San Diego, and. I asked him, I said, you know, do, do you see Oakland a, as a mere image of what Tampa is? Because I think I think there's so much about Oakland and Tampa that are so similar on the field, off the field, issues with stadiums. I mean, we just the, 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 the two franchises are so much like each other. And then, of course, end up in the wild card game against each other. Do you, do you also see it that way?
4: Without question. You know, it's all about beating the odds. Uh, they try to figure out a way to do it in Oakland, the same way the Rays try to do it here. Uh, that, and, and I think it's it's so fitting that those two teams uh, wind up battling each other, you know, as, as they did that the wild card deal. But their whole approach is, is exactly, uh, well, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's uh, – it's not exactly the same because they try to be better than they are um, when they go head to head, but you know they they both are trying to beat the odds and and I I, I to me it's fun' it's, it's kind of a throwback you know if you look at baseball throughout the throughout the years, there were always money teams and there were always teams that didn't have the money. And, and that had to do with market size, and, and it might have been a greater disparity back then because you had no media money involved. So the gate was a big deal, and you know, the if you look at baseball history, you know, the Yankees had the big market, and so they're going to dominate as you would expect. The Cardinals, and what Branch Rickey did there was innovative to a point where some people thought that he had cornered the market on uh, developing players. And he did it you know in, in the way that he had to do it to make the Cardinals the great franchise they've turned out to be. and I think the, uh, I think the A's and the Rays are trying to do the same thing. It's kind of their approach trying to outsmart everybody else out work and out how accumulate all the knowledge and go through that and try to figure out what kind of edge they have.
0: You know, some teams have done a terrific job with their bullpens and obviously the Rays with the opener and all the different bullpen guys using 33 different pitchers last year. You haven't had a complete game in Tampa since 2016, but we're waiting to see this new rule where you got to face three batters and what's that's going to look like? How do you think that's going to, and we don't know yet, but how do you think it's going to affect the Rays?
4: Yeah, because you, you never know. But I'll tell you, here's the other thing the Rays have been very conscious of. And, and you know, they would play the lefty, righty, and all of that matchup. But they have, and we've, we've heard from time to time in the game, you know, this guy is like a right-handed lefty because, you know, he's he's more effective against left-handed hitters than he is right-handed hitters. And And they have, the last couple of years, started to pay attention to that to a point where it's not a coincidence, and I think you're going to see more of that stuff. And, hey, the rules are the rules. They're going to figure out a way to gain an advantage by the matchups if they can do that.
0: Yeah, I always like that about the Rays. Very crafty. I mean, when you start seeing the uh, four outfielders, what was it like when when you first went, wait a minute, we got four guys playing outfield right now?
4: tell you what it does for a broadcaster you know you talk about the concentration of doing a broadcast and you know what that's like but they keep you on your toes because if, if you look down for a second and now you're trying to figure out hey wait a minute they have you know they have four outfielders and then they have another infielder who's out in say short right field. so there are times when it almost appears they have five outfielders with shifts and four men in the outfield and all that. And then you, uh, you know, you got to make sure you can identify those guys because the next pitch, you might have that guy running down a ball into the corner or up the gap somewhere. So, um, you know, it, it keeps us honest as uh, broadcasters. And as you know, it's difficult to keep uh, broadcasters
0: honest. (laughs) I got to tell you, it drives me nuts keeping score when the A's will shift and Marcus Simeon will be in short right field, and he'll get a ball, throw it to first base, and I have to write 6-3, but he wasn't playing shortstop. He's playing he's playing rover. I mean, he's, he's in short right field. It's like they've got to figure out something how to change how we do scoring because it's like he's not a shortstop anymore. He's, he's almost technically a right fielder.
4: Yeah, and baseball is the kind of game when you're broadcasting, as you know, you recap a lot. You go, well, back in the third, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so you have to do that. And and I think all of us, you know, keeping scores are own kind of shorthand. And so I, I like the, what you're talking about there, if if the shortstop's in short right, he's, he's still position six. But if, if he's involved in a play, I may cheat a little bit and, and put like a, a little RF. My wife tells me I write smaller than any living human. And, I, uh, so I will put six in there, and then underneath that, maybe a little RCF right center, something like that, just to just to remind me. So, you know, if you're going to replay that, or you're going to try to recreate the situation, you know, three or four innings down the line, then you've got a chance. Just a just a little visual, verbal cue.
0: You know, the thing about the Rays too, going into this season, is your starting pitching is going to be healthy, and so you may not need the relievers as much in the past. Talk about what, what you think the rotation could look like and truly could be a strength.
4: Well, and Morton and Snell and Glassnow are going to be at the top of that uh, rotation, but Yarbrough and Chirinos have, uh, you know, every right to think that they should be a part of that rotation, and before we stop playing the spring, Nothing had been established exactly how they were going to do it beyond those three, but there's a lot of talk and a lot of consideration about Yarbrough and Chirinos being more uh, more of a traditional starter than uh, than the opener. So I, it wouldn't surprise me now, you know, all bets could be off depending on when and if the season starts and how many games the season will take, you know, they're going to extend it. Will they play 100 games? Who knows right now? And I think they will make the adjustment to that. But when spring training opened, the conversation was uh, entertaining the idea that they could go back to a, a regular rotation, which I think is hilarious. Because here, you know, over the last year and a half, two seasons, they've used the opener. They've done everything that you thought about sending a pitcher to the outfield or first base and then bringing them back in all of those things. And then suddenly it's just like them to go, you know, uh, we're seriously thinking about using a regular rotation. Thank you.
0: <laughs> oh, the Rays are great. Uh, I, I, I love the innovation. I love how they've changed the sport in so many different ways. Hey, thank you so much for coming on during these times and uh, still talking some baseball, I hope all is well in your world. Be safe, and hopefully we'll see you at the Coliseum soon.
4: I hope so, Chris. You take care and uh, be well, and we'll look forward to uh, some return to uh, normalcy, as close as normal as we can get it.
0: From the Rays to the Boston Red Sox, what are the Red Sox going to look like this year? They traded away their best player, Mookie Betts. Some people believe that uh, they're still good enough to win. How good are the Boston Red Sox and what could we expect? Here is the voice of the Red Sox. Dave O'Brien. Well, we love to bring on familiar voices during this time, and of course, we've been covering every single division, and right now, we're on the AL East, and we're going to be talking about the Boston Red Sox with their legendary TV voice, Dave O'Brien. Dave, thank you for coming on the program, and it's just great to have you and talking a little baseball.
2: A legend in my own mind, anyway, Chris. I appreciate it. It's great to have, uh, have a couple of minutes just to talk baseball, isn't it, for a change? Because we're so wrapped up in, in this dire situation, totally understandable. But just to talk a little hardball is very nice once in a while.
0: Well, it, today's today's kind of a historic day as South Korea is starting to play baseball. It's Tuesday there, obviously Monday here. And really kind of the outcome and how they do it is really going to teach not only Japan, because they'll obviously start before us, but then Major League Baseball. So today's kind of a historic day. I think it's, it is
2: for not just baseball, to be honest with you, but for all sports to see how this gets handled. Because the NFL, they want to play, and they want to start playing their games on schedule. But it really is going to come down to how this works without fans in the stands, and can players stay healthy? That's the most important thing. Can they actually stay on the field? You, you and I have walked into many clubhouses and many locker rooms, and it's amazing to me how guys don't get sick more often when they're in such close quarters. So yeah, all of this is going to be a test for can sports return. We're going to watch from afar here in the United States, but it's very close to us. And we're all, you know, we're also eager to get sports back as a part of our lives again.
0: You know, one of the strange things about looking at the Red Sox is, you know, I'm still a dinosaur. I like buying these preview magazines and they have all the projected lineups. And every one of these magazines still has Mookie Betts as a as a Red Sox and David Price. I just, what was it like starting spring training and Mookie Betts is not there?
2: Yeah, I, I'm gonna go and, and buy more of those because those are good days to remember Mookie in the lineup. You know, and not having him is so strange because. You know, Mookie wasn't and is not that, you know, over-the-top personality. Neither is David Price, by the way, despite what some people might think. They both pretty much do their job. They they get after it. Price had issues in town, one of them with Dennis Eckersley. I think everybody read that or knows something about that. But, you know, generally, they were just guys who did their job. They showed up and went to work. Uh, but we we miss Mookie Betts is, you know, every night – Either in the one hole or the three hole or wherever he was going to hit, or in right field. I've been telling people this since the trade to the Dodgers that where we're going to miss Mookie is about seven times a week. A catch is not being made. Either a foul ball that he catches in a ridiculous way down a right field line at Fenway, you've been to Fenway. You know how tough that right field is. It's the most difficult in baseball. He played it like an absolute master that's where i think we're going to miss him more than any other single thing but it's flat strange not to have either one of those guys because you know we recently won a world championship with mookie in right field and david price doing an amazing job in the in the postseason
0: yeah think about that mookie bets as a dodger and tom brady as a buccaneer
2: yeah yeah strange time for new englanders and, and look This offseason, and you're aware of this, but I I don't know, you know, folks who don't follow baseball as closely. This was the most tumultuous offseason the Red Sox have had maybe ever. I mean, Dave Dombrowski was the general manager. Dave got fired before the season even ended, you know, and then there was all the speculation about Mookie Betts and then eventually about David Price as well. They get shipped out. There was the whole investigation by Major League Baseball with the Red Sox cheating. I think they came back with not so much. It really wasn't that big a deal. It felt like a slap on the wrist, if anything. And and all of these things just happened over the course of three or four months. And Boston and New England are sports crazy, and there's always a lot of news. But there was more coming out of Fenway Park in this winter than I've ever seen before.
0: You know, Dave is somebody that, that means a lot to me because he was the first GM I ever interviewed back in 1997 when he was with the Marlins. So we always joke about how young I was. And over the years, he's been so gracious. I was just, I was shocked. The guy wins the World Series. Next thing you know, he's losing his job. What happened there?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, a couple of the deals that were done, just take one, for example, take Nate Evaldi or take Chris Sale, who will not pitch again until, you know, if everyone's fortunate 2021 Uh, those deals a lot of people felt probably didn't have to be made maybe dave overpaid maybe he should have allowed free agency to become and then of course what to do with mookie Betts? that decision wasn't made until david left until david was fired so uh, but i'm with you because i was with dave dombrowski with the florida marlins Uh, dave was an original florida marlin and so was i as a broadcaster my uh, friendship with David goes back 25, 30 years, and I think he's phenomenal. I think he's one of the great general managers in the game. He did exactly what he was asked to do. Uh, come in, take advantage of the resources you have in Boston that are unlike most places, win a championship. He did that. But that doesn't mean that they didn't look at David's record and go, you know what, maybe we have to, we have to cut down the budget Cut payroll. He's not that kind of guy necessarily. Not at this point in his career. And a change was made, and, and the Red Sox are very happy with what they did.
0: Yeah, I, I see him as a Hall of Famer. You think from the Expos to the Marlins to the Tigers, yep. uh, I, I believe someday he will be a Baseball Hall of Famer, and he's, he's a wonderful man. And uh, he is. Yep. What an absolute great career. And I think about you. You know, you talk about how passionate people are in New England. But the Red Sox are king. What is it like being the TV voice and knowing how many people watch you on a nightly basis in New England?
2: Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I mean, you could have as many as, and this is actually rated several times in 2018 when the Red Sox were amazing. Uh, We had audiences of a million two, a million five a night Uh, You know, all through New England. And that's extraordinary. I mean, a lot of network broadcasts, as you know, don't come anywhere near that uh, for, for Major League Baseball. So that's a regional franchise drawing those kind of numbers. It's marvelous because everybody is so invested and it's not just one city. It's six states. It's a big region of the country. They're all Red Sox nuts. That's the only team in town. It's the only Major League franchise. And the fans here are really, really well-educated. And I'm partial because I was born in Quincy, Massachusetts. I'm a Boston kid. I was raised on the South Shore of Massachusetts. So it was coming home for me to take the Red Sox radio and then TV jobs. But I I do believe they are the best-educated fans in the game. I think they really understand the the sport. And and I think what's happened over the course of the John Henry-Tom Werner ownership has been incredible. I mean, to win four championships – when I was a kid, all we did was lose tragically. Now the expectations, here's the, the flip side of this, expectations are always just about one thing. we got to have another parade, you know, at the end of the season on Boylston Street, and it's not that easy, not, not by a long shot, not in any professional sport.
0: You know, first, so you mentioned Fenway Park. First time I went to Fenway Park, and we talked off the year about how my family is from Massachusetts, and I, I was 11 years old. It was early summer. Kalya Yastrzemski hit a home run and Rod Carew was still hitting 400 for the Angels. I'll never forget that. <laughs> yeah, right. So. Every, every single time I go to Fenway, you just you can just picture Babe Ruth and 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 Ted Williams. And it's just it's like a museum. It's it, it's 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 absolutely there's not I love Wrigley. But if I had to see one baseball game and if I wanted to have one and I had to tell somebody if you've never been to a baseball game and you got to see one, it should be at Fenway Park.
2: I, I could not agree more. And, you know, you, you remember those colors in your mind's eye, Chris, you know, first time you walk to, you know, up the concourse and you see the field at Fenway. It's the greenest green you've ever seen in your life. And then there's that monster, which is the quirkiest thing. It looks like it's 900 feet high and it's right in your face. And my memories are the same, seeing Carl Stremsky, number eight. I remember walking up the right field line near the Pesky Pole, first game I ever saw at Fenway, I was with my grandmother, who had taken me to a day game. We got on the T, which is the subway system, at, at above ground subway system here in Boston, took me to Fenway Park with my grandmother. I was like seven years old, and seeing the back of Carl Stremsky, just that number eight, but... The, the, the number was in red and the, the uniform he wore was a pristine white. It was the whitest I'd ever seen. Those colors are so embedded in my mind. And Fenway is a magical, it is a museum. You're exactly right. I mean, there's not another ballpark in the game where there's a ladder connected to the left field wall and it's in play for crying out loud. No one ever hits it or once every 10 years they hit it, but it's an amazing, it's an amazing place to go to work every day. And I really thank my stars, and, you know, it sounds corny and everything, but I grew up here. I never thought I'd get to do games at Fenway Park to be able to do it. I, I really think it's, a, it's such a magical place.
0: Yeah, probably a little more special than Joe Robbie, right? A little bit,
2: yeah. Although, look, that was very cool to, to be on the ground floor, you know, for an expansion team playing at Joe Robbie Stadium. That was awesome. In the first year or two, the crowds were great. It looked like baseball was going to be very successful. And that franchise, that was Dave Dombrowski, that franchise won a world championship in five years. Uh, you know, no one saw that coming as quickly as it happened.
0: Yeah, you know, well, I always laugh because as we got older and uh, could now really experience Fenway, it's crazy. You can be in the bar and it's really like 15 steps in the ballpark.
2: Yes, exactly, exactly. It's it's the most intimate Sports setting, certainly for baseball, that, that you're going to find anywhere. Everything is close. You feel like you're part of the action. And that's, that's part of the charm of it, I think, for players, too. For some guys, it's a little too close. But if you have the right mentality to play here, it's not. And, and you really feed off of that crowd. And, and that's one of the things that's going to be very interesting to me when baseball returns, as I hope it will, in front of, you know, no fans, Uh, Are players going to scuffle with that, you know, not to be able to feed off that adrenaline and the excitement that can often be generated out of the fans? I I saw Buck Showalter had a comment on that the other day. I think he's exactly right. There are some players who need that in order to perform those who who do need it and are not going to get it. They may really scuffle.
0: You know, when I think about the AL East. You know, we, we know all about the Rays, obviously, with the wild card game, and I think our organizations are very similar. We know all about the Yankees, and this layoff is allowing the Yankees to get healthy because they were going to start the season not healthy. I yep. think about Mookie Betts being gone. I think about David Price being gone. I think about Chris Sale being gone. But in a shortened season, hopefully, that we're going to have, Dave, it's really anybody's game.
2: Well, you know, there was one simulation that, that I saw uh, that of the three divisions of 10 teams in each division that had the Red Sox surprisingly winning the East, going 60 and 40, assuming 100 games would be played. And, and believe me, a lot of New Englanders would not have believed that because of what you were just talking about, the subtractions from effectively a championship team a couple of years ago, but the same guys. And how can you, how can you be a good ball club? Well, I think the Red Sox in a shortened season can probably like a lot of other teams hide some of their issues, you know, hide some of their weaknesses and the, the predominant one's going to be starting pitching because at this point, you know, another guy, Rick Porcello is gone. Rick Porcello is now a met uh, via free agency. So you're right. A lot of the look of a recent championship team, especially in the pitching staff is gone, but over a shorter run, and a quirkier schedule, crazy things can happen. The one thing I'll tell you about the Red Sox of, of 2020 is that they're going to hit. They're going to hit and they're going to score runs, even without Mookie Betts. I mean, you've seen Raphael Devers. You've seen Xander Bogarts. I mean, these two guys are moving into the prime of their career as hard of the order hitters. And they're both, they're both coming off spectacular years. And I think they're going to be even better. The Red Sox will score runs as they typically do.
0: Let's end on this. We talked about the passion of the fans in New England, and there's a ton of passion there in the Northeast for baseball. You think of the Yankees, you think of the Red Sox, but you also did games for the ACC Network. What is college basketball like down there in the ACC?
2: Well, typically it's great. I mean, I've covered the ACC for years on ESPN and, and this year, almost exclusively on the ACC network. The league was down this year with North Carolina uh, being no semblance of what they typically were. They had a lot of injuries, had a, a tough time with their point guard. But it is, it's a lot like uh, religion any place else. I mean, college basketball on tobacco road is is a religious experience for these folks particularly when you're talking about north carolina duke but it's not just them i mean you've got nc state hates north carolina nc state and duke hate each other there's a lot of good old-fashioned hate down there in the, in the in the acc and it's a blast because the games are so important and and you know as well as i do chris this is what it comes it's why we're in sports the games are important to people they're important to americans they're important to people all over the country that's why we need to get them back. You know, this is, this is going to be such a huge time coming up into the summer and the fall. If we can be successful getting, you know, professional and then college sports back, it's just going to be better for everybody.
0: Have we ever figured out what a Demon Deacon is? A
2: Demon Deacon is one, uh, this year, not, not too nasty as it turned out, but it's a, it's, it's a great logo. I'm sure you've seen it. The logo I- for Wake Forest is actually one of the better ones in the league. Uh, they just fired Danny Manning. They need, you know, going to bring a new coach in. They're having a tough time getting back to the days where they were a very competitive program. Uh, but I, I, they're, that's actually a fun place to go and visit. All of those stops are really a blast to, uh, to be at. But there's nothing like being at Cameron Indoor for a big game, uh, you know, on a Saturday afternoon in the heart of the college basketball season in the ACC. It's marvelous.
0: Dave, it's great to hear your voice. We really appreciate the time breaking down the 2020 Boston Red Sox. Be safe, be well, and hopefully we'll see you at the Coliseum soon. I look look forward to it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on. From the Boston Red Sox to the Baltimore Orioles. The Orioles are not going to be very good. We're not going to spend a ton of time on the Orioles, but when you can have a guy on like Rick Dempsey, who has some stories about the A's, playing in the World Series, winning the World Series, he's one of the legends in our game. Here is Rick Dempsey of the Baltimore Orioles. Well, as everybody knows here on Ace Cast Live, we've been breaking down every division. We're now in the AL East. We're going to be talking about the Baltimore Orioles, but more importantly... He's one of the guys that, you know, when you grew up watching, you knew he was one of the best. And now he is a professional landscaper. The great Rick Hempsey is with us here on A's Cast Live. Rick, thanks for coming on again. How are you? Well, I'm
5: good. Other than uh, my, my back is broken because I've been doing, like you say, way too much landscaping.
0: I bet your lawns look great. My lawns
5: are Perfect perfect i'll put them up against anybody in the world right now it's, it, it's incredible I, I put all new front yard in i've had the decking the swimming pool the jacuzzi uh and all sorts of gardens i've got three and a half acres i've got all sorts of gardens for everything up here man if you saw a video of my yard you would go oh my god it's disneyland <laughs>
0: Can you imagine? You can start a landscaping business. You can say, "Hey, listen, hire me. We can talk baseball, and and I'll fix your lawn, your plants. You got it.
5: You got it. I can rebuild those uh, the 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 valves. I can do sprinkler heads. I can do all of it. You name it. Concrete work, stairways, retaining walls. I do it."
0: You know, one thing we've learned from the NFL draft and the numbers from the NFL draft of the people watching is we need sports and we want to watch live sports. Once we get this thing going again, what do you think it's going to be like as our national pastime helps us heal once again?
5: Well, I think we're going to be crippled for a while, you know, with everybody playing out of a spring training facility, if we even get to do that, playing out of a spring training facility, no fans. I mean, I had one game over the course of my entire career that I did as a broadcaster, the one game uh, with the Orioles a couple years ago where there was no fans at the ballpark. and uh, Incredible. The Orioles scored like eight runs in the first inning of that game, and there was nobody there to cheer for not one base hit. So it was kind of an eerie feeling, you know, I wanted to run down and get every foul ball in the grandstands, but they didn't want us to do that, (laughs) but wow, it was strange. And now we're looking at maybe a full season of that same thing.
0: Yeah. That was because of the unrest that was going on in Baltimore. And I'll never forget what, you know, there was actually fans outside of Camden yards and you can look in and see the game. So yeah, it's uh you're the one. You're one of the only few that have ever seen a Major League Baseball game where there were no fans in the ballpark.
5: I know it at Camden Yard. It was it was a it was a strange, eerie feeling.
0: Yeah, and that 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 may become the new new norm for a while. Unfortunately, but uh, hopefully we can get this thing going and, and put it on television. And you know, it's been tough times for the Baltimore Orioles. You know, because when I grew up watching you play for the baltimore orioles there was the oriole way it was one of the the model franchises in major league baseball and now in a full rebuild mode what is that like well it's
5: it's tough because a lot of the philosophies about the game have changed you know the analytics has come in and it seems like players um uh, the approach is, is different, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure maybe players before I came in and broke in the big leagues in 1969 thought that the approach was different. But, wow, has it ever changed a lot, you know, and I'm getting in a sense, I'm kind of getting a little worried about, you know, our impact on the fans and what they look forward to in Major League Baseball in a baseball game and and how much of it is changing so fast. I just don't want to lose any more fans.
0: Yeah, because I mean, obviously, right down the street is the Baltimore Ravens, and they're sold out every single game, and everybody's yep. loving Ravens football. And you look at what's going on with Baltimore, and it, it's 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 an empty house almost every single night. And you understand it 54 and 108. You only win fifty-four games in a year. I mean, Rick, that's tough. To, that's tough to watch. Yeah, it, it, it
5: really is. Um, it's uh, it's it's so different because when I came to the Baltimore Orioles uh, in uh, 1976, this organization was already uh, one of the best in all of baseball. We were in the top three best organizations ever. And we produced players and pitchers. Everything was pitcher dominant and defense dominant. And then we mixed in just enough home runs uh, to make a, a pretty good dynasty for quite a while. And uh, with Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson, Boog Powell, Jim Palmer, guys like that, you know. And I was so lucky, even though I hated the trade at the time because I was playing for the New York Yankees when we had a ten-player trade. And then went to Baltimore. Uh, at the time, I just did. I didn't want to get away from the Yankees because they were a pretty good ball club, and we were we were going to play in the World Series in 1972 um, or 76, excuse me, in 76. And um, getting traded away from that team, I didn't know what to expect, but I went with the Orioles, and what it just turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me in my career.
0: Yeah, that that would be uh, getting beat up by the big red machine in 1976 in yep. the Yankees would have a couple legendary battles with the Los Angeles Dodgers. We just had Steve Garvey on because we've been uh, going over the A's in the 70s when the A's won in 72, 73, 74. Uh, You played against those teams. You know how good the the dynasty that was the Oakland A's in the early 70s. Well, before that,
5: the Oakland A's were awesome. In 1969 and 1970, I was playing in the big leagues for the Minnesota Twins, and the Oakland A's were in our division, and they beat us uh, both years. And so they they were already, you know, entertaining the talents of Catfish Hunter at that time, and he's just – unbeatable that ball club with Campaneris at shortstop and Reggie Jackson and and these players that they had at that time Joe Rudy. Wow I mean they just they developed a dynasty there in Oakland that just couldn't be matched and hasn't been matched ever
0: since. Yeah that's been kind of one you know for a lot of our fans and including myself I was born in nineteen seventy two so it's like we've read books about them but this is the first time we've been able to watch them taking down the big red machine or beating. And really, that Mets team was, they only won 82 games, but they, they got hot and they won their division and, and have beat the big red machine. Then, of course, the great Dodger team in 1974 that the A's took down. It, it's just, you look at that time, it's so fascinating because they're so dysfunctional. They fight each other. They all hate the owner. It's all stuff that you wouldn't, Rick, you'd never see today. <laughs> I know. I, I think back at that series because, you know, I was
5: 19 years old in 1969 playing for the Minnesota Twins. And I was just learning the game back then from guys like uh, Jim Cotton uh, and, and Harmon Killebrew. But you look at 1974, and we watched those games every single pitch and tried to study everything and learn everything we possibly could. But can you imagine a World Series, a five game World Series, where four games were determined? a 3 to 2 3 to 2 win for Oakland 3 to 2 Dodgers 3 to 2 Oakland yeah. 5 to 2 Oakland and 3 to 2 Oakland it's just amazing 3 to 2 they had to play the one run game they played the one run game pretty good that's what i miss about baseball because and a lot of people do late in those ball games when one run is going to be the difference we didn't have guys sitting back trying to hit home runs we played one run game well we got guys over. We got them into scoring position, and you won a lot of ball games that way. And I still think that's the way to develop a dynasty: is being able to play that one-run game from that seventh inning on is is the biggest difference in the game today. The shift and everything. Um, uh, I uh, maybe the numbers tell you you should play over that way, but uh, there are times that game situation for me determines how you play the game what What's yeah. the score late in the ball game, and you know what do you what do you got coming up, and who's in the bullpen for you, et cetera? It's a whole different strategy,
0: and I know you'll appreciate this because we've been looking at it. All these games were under three hours, all of them, yeah, well, you know, I have a theory, and I don't know if you care to hear it, but love to hear it
5: <laughs> if you got time, listen. The way I caught 24 years in the big leagues, I caught 27 years overall in professional baseball. And one thing I see a huge difference in, in the game today, and you'll probably never be able to pick it. What is the biggest difference when you look watch a ball game and today with the pitchers only going four and five innings with 100 pitches? What do you think the difference is?
0: I, 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 Off the top of my head, I'd say all the relievers. Okay, you you watch
5: from this point on, you watch how far back the catchers are sitting now behind home plate when they go to receive pitches. I used to be able to touch a, a right hander or a left handed hitter. I used to be able to touch his glove, uh, his knee with my hand on the right side, the left handed hitters, and touch the right-handed hitters with my glove. That's how far back. When they were in that batter's box, I was as close to home plate as I could get because pitches on the corners get called strikes when you catch them near the corners. And if they go across the corner of the plate, they got a whole lot more pitches called strikes than they do today because they're sitting almost three feet farther back than they ever did before because they don't want the hitter's backswing to hit them. It used to be I was up so close to the hitters that the backswing was behind me. Now, you move the catcher back three feet from home, from the back of home plate from where he was, he can barely stretch his glove out and reach the back of the batter's box. That means the umpire's going to be so far back, he can't call pitches. Catcher's right-hand hitter, breaking ball from a right-hander down and away, you catch right on the corner. By the time he catches it, it's almost a foot to a foot and a half off the corner on the breaking ball and anything else that moves there. By the time the catcher catches it, it's, it's so far a ball. I'm wondering the talents, no different pitching wise than I, than it was in my day, but what is the difference? Why is it that good starting pitchers are out of the game by the time they get to the fourth or fifth inning with a hundred pitches? It's the catcher sitting back too far. It's just common sense at the angles and the release points that pitchers have, and they come across home plate instead of down the middle, they're not getting those pitches called strikes. Out of the 200 pitches of every ball game now, if the catcher moves up closer to home plate, he's going to get 15% more of his pitches called strikes, which is 30 more strikes during the course of the ball game, which really translate analytically into 8 to 10 more 2-2 and counts, which is a pitcher's count as opposed to a 3-1 and count, which is a hitter's count. So you see where they're trying to improve the offense of the game by tightening up the ball, making the ballparks more hitter friendly, but they're totally forgetting that pitching is the name of the game. And so you, this series, that the series we're going to talk about, 1972, 73, and 74, the Oakland A's were pitching rich. They kept the same guys in that rotation all of those years, Vita Blue, Ken Holtzman, Catfish Hunter, and Blue Moon Odom. And you finished it off with Raleigh Fingers. That is the name of the game, pitching and defense. You love to see the offense, but you just don't want players anymore sitting back trying to hit all the home runs, although I love to see home runs, and I love to hit home runs. <laughs> but to win baseball games, I would much rather win the game than hit a home run in the game that didn't matter. So that's, that's- Go ahead.
0: That's pretty fascinating what you're talking about. By the catcher moving forward, you're moving the umpire forward, more strikes being called, Yep, fat, the game being can, can I make you commissioner for the day?
5: You know, I, I wish I could, I, I could talk to them. And, and I tried to at one point. Um, I think I talked to Joe Coleman, the president of the National League, recently, and I said, I can help you. With all of the problems that you have in Major League Baseball now, the speed of the game, the time of the game, I can help you in one move. And I got a little bit of a sarcastic reply. Oh, yeah, really, what's that going to be? So you kind of don't even want to tell them from the beginning. But trust me when I say, if those catchers move up to home plate as close as they can get without getting hit with with a swing, you're gonna get back to where the game was before. And the pitchers in today's game, as big as those ERAs now, those things are gonna drop down. And they're gonna start winning ball games. And they're gonna it's really gonna save the time of the game because this is what happens. In today's game, even the good pitcher pitching well in the five, he's out in the fifth inning. You got two situational guys coming in on each team. To pitch the sixth and the seventh inning. Then you've got another man to pitch the eighth inning, and you've got your setup guy. And then you have the closer to pitch the ninth inning. Now that's four pitchers on the average on each team that are coming in to finish off a ball game. You take the manager from the mound to walk to the mound, then call for the right hander or the left hander. He throws two or three more pitches in so doing. Then he he comes in, runs in from center field uh, bullpen. He walks across the infield. He takes the ball. The manager goes back to the dugout. It's probably anywhere between 8 and 10 minutes to change a pitcher, and that's four guys on each team. So you figure out how much more time it takes just to change the pitcher in the game under those circumstances – to finish off a ball game today than it ever did before. That's why you see the games that aren't around three hours anymore. They're closer to four and four plus to get, to get through a baseball game.
0: You are the MVP of the 1983 world series. And then you'd win another world series in 1988 against our A's and the A's were, they, they were favored in this, but great pitching and defense. Once again, What what, what was it like winning the World Series and beating the A's in 1988?
5: I was probably right there at 40 years old when I uh, when I asked the Dodgers to give me a chance to win. Um, I talked to the general manager of the uh, the Dodgers, Fred Clare, and I said, Fred. Give me a chance to come in here and make your ball club in the spring. I'll hit a home run every 24 at bats. I'll drive in a run every five at bats, but I'll take your pitching staff and I'll change them around and we'll win the, uh, the our division. We'll win the playoffs. We'll win the world series. I'll catch the last pitch and I'll give you the ball. And uh, I went into that Oakland A series thinking, since we beat the the Mets in the playoffs, I thought, geez, now we're going to be up against one of the best offensive teams in the history of World Series. Conseco, Maguire, you name all the big power hitters they had. They had a, a great combination of speed, on-base percentage, and power. And as it turned out, it turned out to be the easiest. World Series, the easiest series I think I ever caught because every single one of the Oakland A's told me exactly what he was looking for every single at-bat by watching their feet. It's funny how Conseco, you go through the highlights and you see Conseco, Maguire, and like six or seven of their key hitters would open their front foot up. So it must've been something that the, the the hitting instructor got everybody to try and they were successful doing it. They'd look middle in for the ball with the open front foot. And then when they would pigeon toe a little bit, they were looking middle away. So it was easy to pitch to either side of the plate because I had some pretty good uh, pitchers Oral Hershiser are probably the best season anybody's ever had. And then Tim Belcher and Tim Leary, uh, they were spotting the ball pretty good by the time we got to that point in the season. So it was just it really just came down to being able to pitch to one half of the plate or the other. And we orchestrated it pretty darn well. We got the momentum with the Kirk Gibson home run. But outside of that, we picked them apart. We picked them apart offensively because they told me things when they stepped in the batter in the box, what they were looking for by the way that they, their batting stance was. So it turned out and worked for us.
0: I think people forget how good Oral Hersizer was. He was absolutely an oh. ace, uh, the nickname the Bulldog. Before he got hurt, I, there, were, there, were, there were, really wasn't anybody better than Oral hersizer.
5: Well, it, it, it was truly his year, and he deserved every bit uh, of that Cy Young Award that season. It was just the most incredible run I have ever caught, and I've caught 16 Cy Young Award winners during the course of my career at some time or another. And it was just amazing to see that uh, the two-seam fastball that he had, I could tell the hitter it was coming, and they still couldn't even come close to hitting it. He would throw at left-handers, in the, in the left-handed batter's box and hit the outside corner. That's how much movement he had. And it was, uh, it was an amazing year. I caught Palmer who, you know, uh, won three Cy Young awards in 20 games, eight times in a season. And Jim had the most fantastic career you'd ever want to have. And Oral Hershizer had that one year that was actually better. And it was, it was something to see. And I just, Thank God I was the lucky one who got to catch him in that game. So, yeah.
0: And, and, and one guy we wanted, we've want we really been highlighting in the 70s is Raleigh Fingers. And yep, yep. Raleigh, you know, we look at the, the modern-day guys and we go, oh, these guys are the greatest closers of all time. They're all one-inning guys. When you really look at Raleigh Fingers' numbers – I've been trying to say on this show that you can make a case that he's the greatest reliever of all time, because uh, forget the saves numbers. Look at all uh, how he, how he impacted the game and the volume of innings that he pitched. Uh, You played against Raleigh for a long time. You know, his greatness.
5: Yeah. yeah, a, a, A little funny note about Mike Flanagan and Raleigh fingers. Both of them got together and sent me a picture. I was Flanagan's first strikeout and Raleigh Fingers last strikeout. So. <laughs> it's a great pitcher but <laughs> anyways you're right. I mean Raleigh Fingers he had that thing that a lot of great closers have had is that confidence when he came into a ball game he was the dominant man. There was it was no fear in the way he pitched. He had good movement of the ball. He was not afraid to throw the ball over the plate. If you watch him orchestrate a hitter, when he got ahead in the count, he would push a little bit. He had patience. And I try to tell young players in today's game, too, you've got to have patience with hitters, good hitters, when they come into ball game, They didn't get that reputation by being anything but good mental hitters. So if you're ahead two strikes and no balls, you just can't go for the juggler right there because they're just too good. But you've got to push a little, and this is what you learn from a guy like Raleigh Fingers: is every now and then you brush a hitter back, he gives up the outside corner. You can tell by the body language, and boom, he goes back down and away with a little cut fastball or a slider, and he does his job. And you know, you're right; he he could have been the best of all time with the numbers he put up because everything changes every year the conditions the ballparks the situations the teams and everything like that but raleigh fingers was the most consistent guy of that era ever
0: how how much is it going to cost for me to get you up here to fix my lawn <laughs> You send me pictures of your
5: lawn and I'll give you some suggestions. I'll tell you, but my back is, I've got, I've only got very few days left working in my yard because I've just about destroyed my lower back. It's totally ruined my golf game.
0: Well, i tell you what, I grew up watching you and it's an honor to have you on the program. Once again, we always appreciate it. You're an absolute legend a World Series MVP, a two-time World Series champion. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Be well, be safe, and I can't wait to talk to you once we get this season started. Chris, thank you so much, my man. Thank you. From the Orioles to the Baby Jays. Blue Jays are going to be interesting. They're young, but they got a ton of talent. And the names on the back of their jerseys Pretty interesting because you got a bunch of guys who their dads were big leaguers and some of them were Hall of Famers. You know, Buck Martinez has done play by play nationally, obviously a longtime player. He's got some great stories about his time in Kansas City when they were taking on these great A's teams from the 70s. Buck Martinez here on A's Cast. Well, our next guest here on A's Cast Live is a baseball legend. He's done everything from a player to a manager to a broadcaster, and it's always great to have him on. Buck Martinez is with us. Buck, how are you?
4: I'm doing well.
0: How are you? We're doing well here in Northern California, and one of the things that we've been doing here is we're breaking down every division, and we're going through every single team, and right now we're in the AL East, and we're going to talk about your Toronto Blue Jays, who are such an interesting team. Once we get this thing started in 2020, as we like to call them the Baby Jays, you got a lot of young men. It's going to be fun to watch grow. Yeah, we sure do have a lot of young talent. And, uh, you
4: know, spring training was moving along in the right direction for sure before it came to an abrupt end. But, uh, you know, we've, everybody knows about Vladdy Guerrero Jr. He put on a great show at the All-Star Game last year and had a pretty good rookie season. Uh, but then we got Bo Bichette at shortstop and Kevin Vigio at second and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. in left field and Rowdy Tellez from Elk Grove. He's done a terrific job in a couple of different stints with the Blue Jays. So, yeah, the prospects are very good. And I think the young guys are going to be the foundation of this organization going forward.
0: When's the last time you've seen a young group like this with the names on the back of the jerseys that we all think about their fathers, but this collection of young talent all at the same time? When's the last time you've seen this? Yeah, I don't think we've
4: ever seen this before, and there is a possibility that the Bougie starting infield could all be second-generation Major League players. Or if you consider Travis Shaw at first base, of course, his father, Jeff Shaw, pitched a long time in the Major Leagues, and then Calvin Bijou at second, his father's a Hall of Famer, uh, Roddy at third, his father's a Hall of Famer, and Bo Bichette, Dante Bichette, was a heck of a player for a long time in the Big League, so it's pretty unique, and You can really see it in the way these guys carry themselves day to day. They've been around the game since they were children. And uh, they understand uh, how you carry yourself. They understand the work you have to put into it. And uh, they're all very humble. They're all very uh, uh, motivated. And I think they're all very good players.
0: You know that always fascinates me because that's something in, in my days of covering the Golden State Warriors when you look at Steph Curry and Klay Thompson how these guys grew up with their dads being NBA stars that this was just a natural thing for them it's just it, 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 and you as a former player you know what do you think the true difference is for a guy that just shows up and goes oh my god I'm in the big league versus a kid who grew up running around a clubhouse yeah, it's dramatically different. I
4: mean, obviously, uh, you know, when you talk to these guys and you, you see them, well, Bo was taking ground balls with the Rockies, Troy Tulowitzki and DJ LeMayhew when he was 14, 15 years old. So he's been on the major league field for a long time. Same with Vladdy Guerrero. We can remember great stories about Vladdy being around the game, you know, since he was five and six years old and dressing up in an Expos uniform. And there's great shots of he and his father being introduced in Montreal, to the, the big ove and, uh, you know, they've all been around it. And, of course, uh, Craig Biggio is a terrific uh, player all over the diamond, no matter where you put him. He got 3,000 hits. He's in the Hall of Fame, and Kevin certainly has that type of pedigree. Uh, he's, he's probably the leader of this young core, Kevin Biggio, the second baseman. I mean, he's a, he's a very professional young man, played college baseball at Notre Dame, and uh, you can see that uh, his bloodlines are very strong.
0: You know, one key issue that has to be corrected for the Blue Jays in 2020 and going forward is they used 21 starting pitchers last year. That is just the the amount of pitchers. That's just somehow, some way. And I know you got our our former guy, Tanner Rorak. Just talk about the starting rotation and, and how it really needs to come together to help these young players. Yeah,
4: and obviously we all saw that firsthand uh, demonstrated in the World Series when Washington won the World Series on the strength of that great starting pitching. And you're right, 21 starters last year for the Blue Jays, that just wasn't going to work. So they went out and they brought in Hunjin Ryu, Tanner Roark, Chase Anderson, all three major league established starting pitchers. Plus, they went over to Japan and signed Shun Yamaguchi. And he's making a bid for a starting role, too, once this thing resumes. And we get Matt Shoemaker back. A lot of their A's fans will remember that Shoemaker got hurt in Oakland in a rundown between first and second. towards ACL after a terrific start to his season, and he was lost for the rest of the year. So they have the chance to have five solid major league starters, including... Trent Thornton, who pitched last year as a starter all season long, pitched fairly well. And Ryan Barucki, who had a good run in 17, or excuse me, in 18, and then missed most of 19, but he's coming back healthy. And they've got a, numb, a young man in the minor leagues that uh, baseball fans have already heard about in Nate Pearson. And he's uh, an impact starter, of a much along the lines of a Chris Carpenter or a Roy Halladay, and uh, he's going to be an ace for the Blue Jays as soon as he makes his major league debut.
0: You know, one of the fun things that we've been doing here on A's Cast Live and also on NBC Sports California is we've been playing the World Series game from 72, 73, 74. So right now we're in the World Series in 1974 against the Dodgers. You're a longtime American League guy. When you look back at the greatness of the A's of 72, well, really 71 through 75, but the World Series years of 72, 73, 74, when you look back, what do you think about those Oakland Athletics teams?
4: They were unbelievable in their ability to put great teams together. You know, uh, Johnny McNamara was the manager in 70, and Dick Williams came over, and they, they lost the championship series in 71 but then they won three straight world series and all the while I'm playing in Kansas city and we're trying to catch these guys. And, uh, it was just a terrific team. They had everything you wanted in a baseball team. Of course they had Reggie Jackson and Sal Bando and Burt Campanaris, but then they had a young pitcher that caught the league uh, by surprise and in, invite blue he won the Cy Young and the MVP in 71 and just carried that right on through those championship seasons. But, uh, we loved playing against Oakland. We we loved it. They were tremendous players. They were fiery. They had a lot of personality. They had catfish and bite, as we mentioned. And, and they had uh, so many great players, uh, Gene Tennis and Dave Duncan early on, and, of course, Ray Fossey. And, of course, who can forget the closer, Raleigh Fingers. But you talk about a, a collection of Hall of Fame caliber players. They had them in Oakland. And uh, we always enjoyed playing against those great teams.
0: And and what we have learned because I've been interviewing all of them, the guys that are still alive and it's so much fun and just what a wacky time it was here. You got Charlie Fenley. He's running the team from Chicago he can't see the games. He's listening to them by phone. They're fighting each other all the time. We had the we had Sal Bando on, and Sal was telling the story right before the 74 World Series. The clubhouse attendant at Dodger Stadium was like, hey, I heard you guys are a wild bunch, and that uh, you guys are fighting all the time. And Sal goes, ah, oh, that's overrated. And as he's saying that, right after that, there's the fight between Blue Moon and Raleigh Fingers. Raleigh has to get stitches. I mean, it's just a crazy time that you'll never see anything like this again again
4: never again yeah the, the word around
0: the league was they, they fought themselves before the game and they fought the opponents
4: during the game <laughs> <laughs> they were tremendous and you know what they had so much fire and, and they were all so talented and they were all so different you know everybody had their own personality of course uh, reggie was a uh, Bigger than big at that time. And uh, Sal was a terrific player. We hated Sal Bando. We absolutely hated Sal Bando. We had a fight with him. And I'll never forget this. One day in uh, Oakland, uh, Sal was at the plate. Edgar Patrick was catching. And uh, they got in an argument. And Sal just picked up his mask and smoked him as he was still in his catcher's crouch. (laughs) (laughs) We had fights with Billy North. Uh, Billy North just came up with the A's and, and... doug bird's on the mound and we didn't know billy north from adam but uh billy north gets up there and then doug bird throws at him and billy north charges the mound and i'm thinking what the hell's going on here but they had a fight in the minor leagues and that carried into the big leagues and that's the way it was when the royals played against the uh the a's and of course the the big punch-up that we had the one that uh a lot of people remember was Don Baylor got hit by Dennis Leonard and Baylor went to the mound. And I grabbed Don Baylor on one side, the umpire Bill Haller grabbed him on the other side and all three of us went to the mound. But uh, yeah, we had some terrific battles some great baseball games too. But um, the swinging A's, they were, uh, they were as tough as it gets at that time. And obviously they dominated, they dominated baseball for those three straight seasons.
0: You know, watching these games, there's a lot of things that you notice that are just different in baseball, and a lot of, well, one thing is games are under uh, under three hours, which would have been nice uh, compared to our postseason games now that are, are are four hours or more. But to watch the ball be put into play more, to watch guys choke up, make contact, uh, to watch the hard nose play, Buck, to watch you know second baseman and shortstops constantly being taken out. I mean, the game was just so much more physical than what we have now.
4: No question about it. It was physical. It was uh, rough. You, you did whatever you can. I remember one day, Campy slid into me at home plate and spiked me in the chest protector. <laughs> <laughs> and his, his Spikes got stuck in my chest protector, and he couldn't move, but I couldn't do anything because Billy North is on the bases, running around the bases, and Campy, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but he was trying to kick the ball out of my glove and spike me literally in the chest, but uh, we knew it was going to be tough. We knew it was going to be a battle, and uh, we always had fun playing them. You know, you wanted to play the best. And, you know, we didn't beat them until 76, and and we beat them at home in Oakland. And uh, I I think Cookie Rojas dropped down a two-strike, two-out bunt to drive in the winning run, but it was the first time we ever beat Oakland in that great run they had. And uh, we were pretty proud to to have that kind of uh, opponent in our division, and we finally were able to beat them in 76.
0: You know, when you look at your career, it's pretty amazing. As a player, a broadcaster, you've been a manager. Not many people have ever done all three. When you look back at your career, to just take us through. Just uh, it's a baseball life that's pretty. You
4: know what? I'm very fortunate. I came out of Oak Grove. I went to Sacramento City College. Uh, I never really had any thoughts of being a major league player, and. Joe Gordon was the manager of the expansion Kansas City Royals in 69, and he was from Sacramento. He had seen me play a little bit, and um, they took me the Rule 5 draft. And uh, at that time, you know, everybody was uh, uh, dealing with the Vietnam War. I didn't go to spring training until after my first major league season, and actually I made my debut against the A's. I uh, got my first hit against Boomer Moon Autumn in Kansas City in June of 69, and You know, I've just been very fortunate uh, to play a long time, and I've actually been a broadcaster twice as long as I've played. And then I managed the Blue Jays. I got to manage the first World Baseball Classic team for Team USA, and I've been very fortunate. And, uh, you know, I started out as an analyst on TV, and now I'm doing play-by-play as well. So I guess uh, I've done just about everything in the game, and certainly uh, I missed one thing for sure, and that's going to the World Series like those great Oakland A's teams.
0: Well, it's always great to bring it back home, back to Northern California. Be well, be safe, and uh, when we get this thing going again, hopefully we'll see you at the Coliseum.
4: Now, I would look forward to that. Hopefully we'll get baseball back on the field before this summer's over.
0: So we finished the AL East. We want to thank Ken Singleton, Dwayne Stats, Dave O'Brien, Rick Dempsey, and Buck Martinez, as now we're off to the AL Central. Thank you to listening to A's Unfiltered. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn.
2: This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.